Hello and welcome to the first episode of the Knowledge Podcast brought to you by Keele University. My name's Tom and in each episode I'll be speaking to our academics about a whole host of topics. In this episode I'm joined by Clifford Stott who's explaining the science of crowd psychology and policing large crowds. So please enjoy this first episode and don't forget to subscribe. Hello and welcome to Keele University and we're joined by an academic from the School of Psychology. Do you want to introduce yourself? Uh, my name's Clifford Stott, I'm a professor of social psychology in, uh, in the psychology department here. Cool. And you're also co-director of KPAC. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. one of the uh, university's research centres focused on, on issues relevant to, to policing. Cool. So we'll get into that. Um, Cliff is going to talk to us about the science of crowd psychology. So um, what research has been done and how we can better uh, manage crowd at large numbers of people. Um, I guess first, talk us through what KPAC is. Well, KPAC is, my work is just a component of, of KPAC. Uh, there's a lot of research going on across the university here in the, in the different faculties that has some bearing on, on policing issues. So, for example, in the natural science faculty, we've got a lot of work going around forensics. Uh, we've got a big forensic degree and lots of students coming through Keel who have an interest in uh, using science, chemistry and so on to, to understand how to analyse crimes. Uh, in uh, humanities and social sciences, we got uh, uh, people who are interested in criminology. In psychology we've got people interested in uh, other policing issues like my work on crowds, other people doing stuff around violence reduction, domestic violence and so on. So uh, KPAC is a, a device to help to start to bring these different pockets of research together into a coherent structure that enables us to uh, link to external partners and also to start to think in interdisciplinary ways about um, social challenges that we've got in the world and I think that one of the ways in which we need to understand academic knowledge is that when those challenges uh, are very difficult to confront it's important that we start to think in different ways and part of that is overcoming uh, disciplinary boundaries and getting sociologists to talk to chemists and criminologists to talk to psychologists which um, in faculty structures can often be quite difficult because we end up in our own little departmental silos working on the same problem with different in different ways with different perspectives and never having those conversations and how, how's that going is that, is that yeah achieving? it's going well I mean we, we um, you know we worked hard to get recognition um, in the university I've only been here myself 18 months and uh, there was already a strong program of work coming out of criminology um, that we've built off the back of so there was an interest at university level to make this happen um, and I've got a lot of background experience on working with police forces across the globe and I brought that experience to bear and it's helped us to move into a situation where there's the formal uh, acknowledgement of the university that we are a university research centre we've got backing from the university financially to help put in place staff in the centre to help build our capacity and now it's just a question of trying to coalesce that to build some resilience and try to get some research projects going that are funded um, from outside. Brilliant. So we'll, um, we'll we'll come back to some some of the KPAC stuff because there's um, there's a great blog on the website where you can read through yourself and uh, Owen West. Yeah, it's yeah. one of our research fellows who, who blogs a lot. He's a, a senior police commander and uh, he and I work together a lot on issues to do with policing football. Yeah. Um, and uh, he so blogs quite a lot. We'll come back to some of those. Um, but I guess a great one to start with will be Catalonia and what's, what's just happened mm. with their referendum uh, where we saw quite a, a large number of... Um, of crowds and, and almost a struggle mm. with the with the law enforcement there. Um, and just just before we carry on, if you do want to ask questions to Clifford, if you've got any questions as we go along, uh, just comment them below and we'll, uh, we'll ask them for you. 
Um, but yeah, on Catalonia, if, if a similar sort of thing was to happen in the UK, what tactics would we sort of deploy to, to manage crowds who are trying to vote in, a, in an illegal referendum that was what described as by the Spanish yeah. government? Yeah, well, I think it's really difficult. I mean, it, it, first and foremost, what um, Catalonia does for us as, as crowd psychologists, if you like, is give us an opportunity to um, start to talk about the political significance of crowds and the way that we understand crowds, um, the way that we manage them and the political significance of crowds are, are really interlinked as issues. Um, and what we're seeing in the Catalan is to some extent in the news precisely because of the way that they've been policed and that the justification that the Spanish government are using to legitimise that form of police intervention um, is, as you characterised it there, framed in terms of the notion of the illegality mm -hmm. of this referendum. Now, at a technical level, yes, of course, um, uh, the, the, the referendum was illegal. But gathering in crowds isn't. It's not wrong to um, assemble, it's not wrong to have beliefs, it's not wrong to try to express those beliefs. And one of the underpinning principles through which we need to understand those rights is the European Convention of Human Rights. And bear in mind that the European Convention of Human Rights was something that grew out of the Second World War. Yeah. So political society in uh, the post-war period turned around and said to itself, well, what do we need to do to prevent another genocide, like the Second World War and the massacre of the Jews and so on? Well, we need to put in, in place and enshrine a set of rights that will be protected under all circumstances. Now, some of those rights are qualified, some are absolute. Uh, right to life, right to beliefs, right to assemble, right to express and so on. And what that architecture of human rights is doing is underpin, underpinning what it means to be a democracy. Right. So if you've got people who are mobilising onto the streets to express a political belief that they have, that it's legitimate for them to, uh, to be an independent country, it's fundamentally anti-democratic to wade into that crowd and start hitting them with violence. Because it's just an affront to those underlying principles and rights. Now you can deny people the right of assembly and expression under certain conditions, um, but those conditions have to be measured. You can't just go in there as a police force and start to deny people the right of freedom of expression. You don't have the right as a police force in a democratic state to go into a peaceful crowd and start grabbing old age pensioners by the hair and pulling them out. You don't have the right to go in there and start striking people uh, with unreasonable or what we would call in legal terms disproportionate force because um, what they're doing doesn't justify that. Yeah. Peaceful assembly is a protected right and in order to infringe that protected right with the use of force, you have to have certain justifications in place to do it. And those justifications clearly weren't present because the crowd needs to be violent, it needs to be confrontational and right. so on. So the police can and should have used alternative measures uh, that didn't rely on force as an attempt to try to deal with that situation first. And they quite clearly didn't do that. And as a consequence, it's a violation of the European Convention of Human Rights. And as a consequence of that, it's fundamentally anti-democratic. And that's really important framework to understand what yeah. we're talking about here. Because what we try to do in other circumstances is to work with police forces to understand how they need to act to enshrine those rights. 
So when we look at the situation in the UK, one of the changes we've gone through over the last six or seven years is that police forces in the UK have begun to understand much more clearly what their obligations are under the European Convention of Human Rights. So we have a much more sensitive uh, and informed position about um, how to police crowd events democratically. And in a sense, that's what's gone wrong in the Catalan. And what we're seeing is a situation of state intervention, Spanish state intervention, uh, with paramilitary units that are the police, the national police, and they are using what we would call disproportionate violence uh, to, uh, to, to impose state control. And that is what is fundamentally anti-democratic about it, and that's why it's a problem. And that's how it is different to the situation that we're in currently in the UK and other parts of, of Western Europe. So, would it, so I guess what you're saying then is um, the, the violence that they used wasn't warranted in that circumstance, but yeah. it would have been if the crowd was, was a violent crowd. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I mean, it, one of the things is that... Um, where um, the rights are being confronted is in uh, rights of freedom of peaceful assembly. Now, that's what we call a qualified right. And the police do have the right to infringe that under certain circumstances. So the fact that, that it might be um, you know, a, a, a violent gathering um, or, or people have criminal intent, then clearly you have the right to go in there and prevent that. And you can use force to do it. Mm. But they actually have to have that violent intent. Yeah. And if they don't have it, then it's your intervention and the infringement that you make on their rights that's the criminal offence. And that, that's the case in the UK because we have a thing called the Human Rights Act, which creates obligations for the police not to interfere um, with these protected rights unless they have um, a justification for doing it. And it's the lack of justification here that's the problem that renders that use of force disproportionate and therefore illegal. So what we can see very clearly from the images is that a lot of those people were not being violent in any way, shape or form. They were simply queuing up. To vote. Uh, to, to vote and to express their beliefs. Now, a much more democratic way or a peaceful way to do it, just simply let them vote. You don't have to listen to the outcome of the vote. You can let them go to express, to assemble, uh, to believe in peaceful ways. So you're protecting those rights, but then the constitutional framework then says, well, okay, you've expressed those views, but that doesn't have any bearing because your, your, um, you know, your election was illegal, it has no constitutional uh, basis, and therefore um, we, we are not going to listen to it. So you know, there, there are differences in the way in which um, a democratic state has to behave. And I think that part of the outrage that people are feeling here is precisely because Spain is a democratic state in Western democracies in Europe. European Union context and for a democratic state to behave in that way starts to pose some very very funda fundamental questions about whether it is a democracy or not and that that's really where the debate is I think at the moment. And it's not really finished yet has it because we could see more um more crowds assembling and of course may result in even more violence. Yeah and again I think it helps us to reflect on on the significance and the importance of crowds and crowd psychology because when crowds mobilise onto the street in this way in this kind of situation it has fundamental implications I mean the outcome of this could uh, could cascade out into a civil war it could um, lead to uh, the destabilisation of the of the Spanish nation and, 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 and the Catalan tearing away from that. Um, it will have implications in international relations. How will the European Union relate to a self-declared 
Catalonian state? Um, how will uh, governments that recognise that state then relate to the European Union? And so the, the, the implications of this are, are, are really profound. And that's why crowds are so important. Because if we can understand crowds and we can understand why they behave in the way that they do, um, we can start to articulate our theory and our psychology in ways that has some meaningful uh, bearing and relevance to these profoundly important social and political issues. Yeah. So, so kind of in the in the UK, we we'd, we'd with respect to the human rights act is what you kind of is what you're saying our tactics would yeah that's would one have a more peaceful approach one element of it is that um, the, the 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 current approach to to policing in the UK has changed a lot uh, primarily since the um, a protest that took place in London in 2009 around uh, a G20 international summit mm -hmm. and during that protest um, a newspaper seller called Ian Tomlinson was killed and he was killed as a, a functional police use of force. He was just basically going home from work around about seven o'clock and he got struck um, and pushed over by a police officer and suffered internal bleeding as a, as a, as a function of that and died. Um, that led to a bit of a political crisis. Anybody dying at the hands of police in that context is bound to open up some very powerful questions. Um, the regulatory body around policing in the UK um, then took a look at public order policing and um, began uh, an analysis of where it was at that was focused very much about the implications of the Human Rights Act, that the police at that point hadn't really understood the implications of the Human Rights Act for how it acted in the context of that demonstration. So a big part of the change is a legal one. But what was also at work was that they were using outdated psychological theories of the crowd and police officers were being trained in these outdated uh, theoretical models of the crowd um, that were impairing their decision-making capability in some very very challenging situations and we've been pushing for a long time to get the police in this country to recognize that our crowd science uh, would be helpful to help them to understand how to orient to crowds and police them in ways that reduce violence but we weren't getting much traction um, and what we did get after the death of Ian Tomlinson was an opportunity to engage with this uh, political process and um, as a consequence a lot of the recommendations then started to talk about our crowd science as the conceptual basis. So we get this combination of crowd science and law that functions together to push public order policing away from uh, disproportionate use of force towards what we call a, a dialogue based graded approach that takes into account the dynamics of crowd psychology as we understand them and learns how to manage those dynamics in ways that both reinforce a rights-based approach but also help them to reduce the disorder that they're, they're seeking to avoid. So, so why is it then that, um, is it as simple as that in the past they thought that by using excessive force would, would scare people to yeah. disperse crowds. Was, was that as yeah, simple as that? Yeah, it's a combination of, of, of certain uh, certain ideas. Um, the first and most important of those is crowd psychology itself. And, and crowd psychology was, was essentially born in, in the late 19th century in France. And at that period of time, France was destabilised um, across the whole of the 19th century by a whole series of, of revolutions, which by definition were crowd events. Yeah. And 
they sought to utilise the emerging social sciences to understand the nature of the crowd, not because they wanted to create some kind of enlightened knowledge about the nature of crowd psychology, but they wanted to develop a technology of social control because the crowd was a problem and they needed to deal with that mm. problem. Um, so this crowd psychology was born in a way that uh, created an idea that the crowd is, one of the favourite expressions that we, we use uh, a lot is mad, bad and dangerous to know. Uh, that somehow ordinary people in crowd events undergo some sort of psychological dysfunction as, a, as, a, as an outcome of being what they call anonymous. And that opens them up to um, behavioural manipulation by so-called ringleaders in the crowd and leads them to become violent, not because they have any kind of rational reason to be violent, but because they're irrational as a function of being in the mob. Yeah. And that notion of mob psychology has been around for centuries. It's still a very, very prevalent way in which people try to understand crowd events and has been a feature of how the police have understood how to relate to crowd events. So by definition, if a crowd is irrational and dangerous, then it needs to be controlled and it needs to be controlled through the use of force. What's the point of reasoning with people who are irrational? Past that stage, yeah. So you can only deal with it through force. And then there are other ideas about the way in which people conform with the law. So we might have a notion that people conform with the law. You know, why don't you go out and rob a bank today? Well, because if I did, I'd go to prison. Mm. So this idea that there's punishment there, and we conform to the law because if we violate the law, then we know that there's a deterrent there that gives us what we call instrumental compliance, that people obey the law because of the deterrent. So if we show people there's a deterrent and a sanction, then people are by definition going to conform with the law. Now, to a certain extent, that's true. But at the same time, the majority of people in society, I would argue, they don't conform to the law simply because they think if they break the law, it's going to put them in prison. They don't break the law because they believe the law is right and it's wrong to break the law. Mm. So most of us, when we, we walk around, we don't get involved in criminality because we think it's wrong to do that. So we're not complying through some kind of instrumental reason we're complying because we have a normative commitment to that point of view and that that notion of normative and instrumental compliance is very very strong idea in criminology and these ideas about crowd psychology are very very strong and important in social psychology and at the moment we're trying to kind of bring those ideas together to a certain extent to try and understand the the, the dynamics of identity and, and and compliance and legitimacy and so on in the management of crowd events so let's look at crowds when it comes to football then. Yeah. Um, and in particular, you're talking there about um, a deterrent. So is it is it better to have a large number of police officers on show, uh, perhaps armed at times, or is it better to have a, a lesser presence? Well, that, that's, that, that's the key distinction. If you look at it from an instrumental point of view, then the idea is that you need deterrence. So you need big shows of force, you need riot cops, you need people to understand that if they step out of line, yeah. this is the consequence of what's going to happen. But what we began to understand through our analysis of, of riots and, and how they, they, they were coming about, we were doing studies um, in the late uh, 80s and early 90s, um, looking at that, the emergence of riots, the poll tax riot, and then we were looking at rioting involving English fans at the World Cup finals in Italy in 1990. And we began to recognise that actually it was the, the, the heavy-handed policing that was creating the riot, that was creating a situation where people who were going there thinking, well, I'm 
I'm just a tourist, I want to, uh, you know, I want to drink beer and go and watch football, they were being treated like criminals, even though they had no intention to do mm. anything wrong and, and were not doing anything wrong. And it was that treatment that was creating the conditions under which people were starting to think, well, now, hang on a minute, it's not me that wants trouble, it's, it's you, it's you cops. So getting you very defensive. Yeah, they were, they, it was starting to create a situation where they were seeing violence against the police as legitimate. And also because the, the um, actions of the police were indiscriminate against England fans as a whole, all England fans were experiencing this stuff. So lots of England fans were getting angry about it, so they felt united in that anger. And it's that combination of perceived legitimacy that it's right to confront the police because they're doing something wrong, and the fact that there's enough of us to do it, that's the primary dynamic through which the violence was coming about. And we began to recognise that quite early on. But I'm a kind of academic that wants to do things about it, not just to theorise. Yeah. So I set about trying to develop a programme of work that would give us the opportunity then to integrate this knowledge into, into the policing uh, approach. Now, that's very, very difficult in a context where the, the, the most of the problems that were occurring with English fans was actually in continental Europe when they were travelling abroad. So it wasn't about us influencing our police it was about how do we go out there and influence the Dutch police, the German police, the Portuguese police and so on. So we were very fortunate in the early stages of the development of this work that we were uh, heading towards the European Championships in 2004 in Portugal. And we began a programme of work, it was funded by the UK government, um, where we began to try to build relationships with the police in Portugal to get them to listen to our ideas and to build their policing model for the tournament around our ideas. And we were very successful in that. We, we, we got them to accept our ideas, we got them to design their security response um, around our ideas and the, the key characteristic of that uh, policing response was to withdraw the police and to pull out the riot squads not to confront English fans with big shows of capability although they had them but to engage with uh, England fans uh, with ordinary cops in ordinary uniform being friendly mm. um, and through that process they construct police legitimacy and they also um, have a better understanding of what's going on. So if they need to escalate to use force, say there is somebody doing something criminal, there is somebody looking for a fight, they're able to get into a crowd situation and deal with that person on the basis of their behaviour rather than the crowd as a whole. So because they differentiate in their use of force, because they're constructing police legitimacy, because they're able to intervene with force in a directed way that people will understand as legitimate, because they can see what that person is doing, then they don't create the dynamics of a riot. And what we ended up seeing at that tournament was a massively successful tournament where uh, in areas controlled by the police force we were working with, which is all the major cities, there was no major incidents of disorder. And after that, we started to get recognition because people began to see, well, these aren't just mm. ideas. These are actually solutions. And has this been adopted further, is it? Yeah, well, after the tournament, the UK government started to shape its uh, policy around um, travelling England fans in terms of the theory. It was adopted by uh, the European Union framework of international police cooperation around football as a, a model of guidance. And then we started to see these ideas being implemented um, in particular in the European Championships in uh, Austria, Switzerland. Uh, we saw them implemented again in uh, Poland, Ukraine. Um, and, but most interestingly of all, and again this is my issue as a, as a crowd scientist, when things go wrong it's actually good news for me. Um, what we see is in Marseille, um, in the uh, French European Championships in 2016, there was major riots involving English fans. Now what we know about the policing response in Marseille is it completely threw that model out of the window. 
and it policed in the old school deterrent way, which we know to be ineffectual. So from our point of view, it's no surprise that there were major riots yeah. there because the form of policing that was engineered in that city um, was consistent with what we would expect that deterrence approach to uh, achieve. So I think um, it's definitely working that. Is, is there any... Um I think in your blog you've mentioned places like Sweden mm. who've adopted a lot more of a um, a dialogue-based approach rather than a deterrent-based yeah, approach. Yeah, um, yeah. Are they, are they kind of... Have they adopted it To a certain extent, yes. So uh, I think um, it's really important to understand that getting academic theory into policing in this environment is incredibly I mean I couldn't trundle over to the Spanish government and say hello I'm a crowd psychologist I don't think you want to do that uh, it doesn't work like that it's a, it's a complex politicised process and we were very fortunate to some extent to have um, a political crisis in football that opened the door to enable us to start integrating the theory of right. practice. Um, we then had another opportunity to extend that uh, beyond the arena of football into the arena of protest policing um, as a result of uh, the death of Ian Tomlinson and the political crisis. And that is part of the problem, is that what happens in this environment is that we learn after a crisis, we learn after mm. things have gone wrong, we learn after a disaster. And that's a major issue because I want us to be in a situation where we can predict that these things might happen and prevent them from happening in the first place and that that's quite a difficult uh, challenge to engineer and in Sweden they had their disaster in Gothenburg in 2001 again another international summit um, that went disastrously wrong and they ended up um, with days of uh, riotous behavior on the streets of Gothenburg uh, to the extent that they ended up discharging somewhere of, uh, over 150 live bullets actually firing live ammunition at people. They didn't kill anybody, but they opened up over 150 so not rubber times. bullets, just, just live They live were using rubber bullets right. and all sorts of things, but they actually went as far as using live ammunition to shoot people. But basically, police officers in very, very difficult situations and thinking that their only way of staying alive was yeah. to, to start Defending, opening up yeah. with a gun. And, and, and that was a major crisis for, for the Swedish government. They uh, then undertook an inquiry um, that inquiry began to recognise that part of the failure was a failure of dialogue, a failure of coordination. So they wanted to also create a coordinated national response within which dialogue was a, a central component. And around about 2004, 2005, in the immediate post um, analysis environment of our work in the European Championships, they came across us as crowd psychologists, started reading our work and recognising that our work was actually consistent with what they were trying mm. to achieve. So they saw that relationship and they brought us in and we started to teach um, in their police academy and we started to uh, work with the Swedish police to implement uh, a dialogue-based approach in, in the Swedish context, which is still there now as a, as a fundamental way in which they think about uh, their responses to public order and they have some very very successful outcomes uh, there's one uh, just a, a few days ago again uh, Gothenburg there was a big um, Swedish Nazi rally and a big counter protest and they uh, went through that day without any kind of major disturbance and a lot of people are attributing that success to this policing mm -hmm. model um, and it's focus on human rights it's focus on dialogue it's focus on understanding the nature of crowd dynamics and managing those in ways that don't lead unnecessarily to these kinds of escalations that aren't there 
because people come to the event with the intention of engaging in confrontation but emerge in the context of the event as a function of particularly um, difficult uh, situations in which the police inadvertently sometimes uh, intervene with overwhelming force and, that, and that, that's at the wrong time in the wrong way and it creates a dynamic through its interaction with crowd psychology. It's, it's brilliant. Um, I think we'll leave it there. I'll, get, I'll ask you one more question before we go. But okay. just uh, just before we go, if you if you are interested and want to read more, you can go to keel.ac.uk forward slash kpac. That is K-P-A-C. Uh, and there's lots of information about uh, the the the, uh, the science of crowd psychology and the blogs from again yourself and and Owen West. Um, but I think finally, if, if 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 there are people who are prospective students and they're, they're interested in this sort of stuff, is this something they can study while they're at Keele? Yeah, certainly. I mean, we, we we're teaching a module on all of this in in our third year psychology uh, course. Um, I've got my inaugural me- lecture on on the thirtieth yes. that you can uh, in, the, in in the Westminster Theatre. So if you want to come along and hear in a bit more detail about this work, you can do so there. But also also suggest just follow me on Twitter. I'm I'm an avid user of Twitter, and I'm always uh, tweeting about the things that I'm doing, where yeah. I'm going, uh, the work that I'm doing and uh, link into various things so you can pick up lots of resources uh, through that brilliant thank you very much Clifford okay Uh, we'll see you again soon